Hello, do you have a minute, listeners? First and foremost, um, this is Allison speaking, and um, I'm also speaking on behalf of Lacey. We just want to say thank you. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast so far. Thank you for sharing it with your friends. Thank you for sharing it on your social media. You've no idea how much that means to us. It's the you know present day way of really showing support, and we really do appreciate it. Um, this podcast has been, you know, making it has been exciting, nerve wracking, anxiety provoking, and also fulfilling in ways that we really didn't anticipate. So thank you from the bottom of our hearts. This next episode is an episode that um, we recorded and we feel very honored to have made it. And we also feel protective of its contents and of our guest. Nicole shares her personal feelings on mental health and suicide. She shares her personal account of the day that her sister died and the journey that her sister was on that led up to that day. Of course, (laughs) we could hardly fit all of her journey into a one-hour episode. Um, So they're just fragments of her journey and points that Nicole thought of and shared in the moment. Nicole is not a mental health counselor. She's not an expert on suicide, and she can only speak to her opinions and what she remembers, even though many people were affected by what happened and the journey that her sister was on. We are grateful that she had the courage to share this story with us. Although I am a mental health counselor, views and opinions expressed in this episode do not represent that of our places of work. The content here should never be taken as medical advice. If you or someone you know is contemplating suicide, ask for help in any way you can, or ask them if you can help or just listen. The crisis text line is 741-741. All you need to do is type the word home and someone will respond to you 24-7. Save it in your phone, save it in your friend's phone, save it in your teenager's phones. The crisis line to call is 1-800-273-8255 or 1-800-273-TALK. These are people trained to listen to you without judgment. A website that I find useful is called crisistextline.org. There's wonderful information on what to do, what to look for, how to help, and how to identify if someone needs help. Please go to the website and educate yourself, or go to the website if you are in need of help. I will be reading from that website and um, sharing that after the episode. It's a little bit more in-depth, but I really highly encourage you to listen to it. Even if you don't know someone right now who's suicidal or you feel like you're not suicidal, It's just a good thing to know. You never know when you might need that information. Thank you for listening. We hope you listen with an open heart. Also, there's a trigger warning. If you are triggered by discussions of suicide um, or mental health, mental health disorders, don't listen. Um, And if there are little ears, young people around you as you are listening, Uh, This might not be the episode, actually, probably not any of our episodes, really, we drop a lot of F-bombs sometimes, but uh, this one specifically is not designed for anyone who cannot understand the concept of suicide. Without further ado, here is the episode, The Eye and Brittany. Welcome to another episode. Hi, guys. Do you have a minute? So we've now discovered, really, that a lot of do you have a minute is finding people who are 
good at something or know something about a topic or yeah and then we ask them if they have a minute to come and talk to us and tonight we have oh one of my favorites (laughs) another another i shouldn't say this it's kind of like insensitive to actual stalking victims but maybe it was like i'm a it was one of my recruiting uh (laughs) friend recruiting efforts that? (laughs) that sounds good yeah um my friend nicole Thank you for being here. Hi. So Nicole is lives in the neighborhood and drives a big white SUV. And I like had my eye on her kind of, you know, and then my dearest friend, Stacy, who actually Stacy was with me when I ran into you in the parking lot. Oh. And I was like, hi, Lacey. I follow you on Instagram. <laughs> and you were like, oh, my gosh, do you want my autograph? <laughs> So she's like your wingman, your stalker she wingman. Is. She's she's Stacy is one of the best ever, but she already knew you and was like, Oh yeah, that's Nicole. She's so cool. You have to talk to her and follow her and on Instagram and find her in the gym. And then I walked up to you, yes, I think, at the gym. Day. Yeah, wasn't it yes, that day? It was that day because she told me about you. Oh. She's like, You need you need to meet Allison. You have to meet Allison. How weird. Isn't that and weird? Then, yeah. Well, I had seen you in the gym and you were lifting heavy weights. Yep. <laughs> So I was like, she's darling and like tiny and she's lifting heavy weights and and she has freckles. So (laughs) we're in. (laughs) We are in. You came up to me when I was lifting. Yeah, I did. (laughs) (laughs) That one time I was at the gym. (laughs) I did see you in the locker room the other day. Yes. You were talking to someone and I like hovered behind you, but you were in deep conversation conversation. So I just left. Yeah. Well, you should have said hi. I know, but then this lady you were talking to looked very like yes. engaged with yes, you, so I felt was. like a total <laughs> yeah. jerk. I didn't want to be like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> um, All right, so we are talking about a pretty heavy and very personal topic tonight, and a lot of what we are, we've just sat in my bedroom studio and gone over the intention behind this episode, things that we want to make clear. Um, This is obviously a hard topic to discuss, but at the same time, it's so very important. Big picture. And we're talking about suicide, mental health, and also specifically schizophrenia. So it's actually one in a hundred people are diagnosed with schizophrenia in our country. And those are people who are actually diagnosed, who have the ability to go be diagnosed. So who knows if that's completely accurate. Could be more, but... Um, and you know, Nicole is brave enough to come here and share her story with us tonight. And I think one thing we want to make really clear is that everything we talk about tonight is her personal story. And you are here to share with us based on your experience and nothing that you say is the rule or the law on mental health or schizophrenia or grief or anything of the sort. So... Does that sound sound right? Yeah. Okay. Um, just a little bit more of an introduction. Um, Nicole uh, is a wonderful, beautiful artist. You can find her art on Instagram. It's Coley underscore art. That's C-O-L-E-E underscore art. I highly recommend going to her page. It is going to be a treat. Um, but she has taken a little bit of a break from the art world I stole this from her page. She said, I, uh, it's okay. Her blog, she says she's taken a break from creating visually to work on the blog called the I in Brittany. That is her sister. 
the journey through grief, mental illness, and suicide. It says, I had a sister who had schizophrenia and eventually took her life. There is poetry, truth, and my perspective and opinions on things I witnessed and what I and she went through. So, how are you, I think one thing we wanted to get out of the way, you know, specifically talking about mental illness, we were just talking briefly about the language around suicide. Right. And mental health, mental illness, mental disorders. What can you share with us about the language? I mean, <clears throat> so I have been seeing her psychiatrist for, well, ever since she's been gone, so 11 years. Um, and she actually, she, like I said, was her psychiatrist. So she saw my sister for maybe eight to 10 years prior to her death. Um, uh, like you said, mental illness, I, told, I was told was not um, the correct verbiage mm -hmm. of describing someone that has schizophrenia, anxiety, PTSD, um, and that instead to use mental health disorders. Right, and we were saying, you know, what happened with your sister, obviously it's, it became such, the, the word illness almost feels, you know, more appropriate. Right, But right. then again, you know, it is, it is, it can be kind of hard if someone has anxiety or depression or PTSD. It's like, right. well, it's not an illness, but it can feel like that. So yeah. It's a tricky one. She described it, um, I remember it took me, I have really bad anxiety and PTSD, and um, I was very hesitant to try medications. And for the 11 years that I saw her, I probably tried maybe four different ones, wow. five different ones, and never ended up liking them. Um, for, for me, they just, we couldn't find the right one. Um, and I remember her telling me, if you broke your leg and went into the doctor's office or a hospital, and they told you this is the medication you need to take to feel better or to help you, you know, would you refuse it or would you take it? And I was like, well, I probably, you know, if I was in a lot yeah. of pain, pain, I would probably take Absolutely. it. Mm -hmm. um, and, or cancer. Um, so I think that's where the illness and the disorder thing, for me, it's hard to remember to not say illness um, because it, it is something that has affected your brain and affected the way you think or do things or how you live your life. Um, I get it. Yeah. I get that mental health disorder is a better way of putting it, but... So for the sake of our own comfort and just getting, you know, using words, I don't want you to have to worry about like, oh, shit, I right. said, <laughs> you know, yeah, that helps to clarify where you're coming from. You right. get it. It makes sense. But if you do say that tonight, that's okay. The other okay. thing we were talking about was there's um, in trainings that I've had for um, screening for suicide or treating, you know, coming up with plans with people or helping someone who's suicidal. Um, the word that now they're saying to use is complete suicide instead of commit suicide. And when we were talking prior to recording, I was like, wait, what? You know, it seems like a task that you do. Or what were you saying? It's yeah, it's like mm -hmm. it. W they had this task or job to fulfill and they completed it. Right. I, that's new for me, so I haven't had enough time to wrap my brain around it and really like dissect it and think about it. Um, 
But it just made me yeah. feel that way when I heard that. Well, right. And I think that's another thing, you know, being able to speak to it in your experience and what you are comfortable with. And right. That's committing suicide is such a widely used and historically used right. way of phrasing the act right. of suicide. So taking one's life. Yeah. Okay. Let's get a little background. Yeah. Shall we? Yeah. Do you have any questions over Let's there? Let's hear about it. Well, I just wanted to say we we Allison sent me your your blog and said, "Oh gosh, check check her out. Got to read her stuff." And we agree, we Allison and I both agree, you cannot read Nicole's writing without c- literally mm-hmm. clutching your heart. It is so rich, it is so deep and powerful and really it's beautiful writing and the way that you're able to do it and share your perspective so candidly and with such raw emotion is so amazing. No, thank you. Just incredible. Thank it's you. So beautiful. I read it really slowly. Yes. I mean, you yeah, you, yeah. you savor yeah. it. Yeah. It's almost like you were inside your body, feeling your feelings mm-hmm. and feeling your thoughts, and we can ju- uh, we can just see your heart in your right. writing. Yeah. That means a lot because when I do them, sometimes it's like this, um, for lack of a better term, uh, like this manic. I got to get it out. This is what I was feeling that mm-hmm. day. This mm-hmm. is how I feel about this subject. And it's really quick sometimes and very emotional. I end up crying, you know, certain times. Um, so for you to understand that and mm-hmm. feel that means mm-hmm. a lot. Oh, good. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It is rare to find someone who you know in person and then be able to see regularly their expression of deep emotion you know right. I mean it takes a long time even I mean I'm a friggin therapist and I have people come in <laughs> and it's like you know sometimes I'm like oh good there it is it's been six months you know like <laughs> oh gosh but for you to share it and then also be anxious and a little have some social right. anxiety and yeah. be more on the reserve side you don't you're not going to put yourself out there all the time but you do in this artistic way right I don't know what is that how when did that start for you um putting myself out there yeah so on my personal page about five or six years ago I started um you know hashtag my forever tbt on instagram yes Mm -hmm. um and every thursday for five to six years I would post a picture my sister used to take these beautiful selfies before selfies were a thing (laughs) and um and I would post a picture of her and then it started out with poetry but then as I gained more confidence and really didn't care, you know, what other people thought, I would share stories or circumstances um, about her life or my life with her or grief or suicide or, um, you know, just anything having to do with that. Um, and it just kind of spiraled into that. Um, and I don't really know what made me do that. Um, has it been cathartic for you? Has it been a healing? I look forward to Thursdays, um, more so than my blog. Um, and people have told me that they look forward to Thursdays, people that have known her, Mm -hmm. um, people that have family members that have a mental health disorder or committed suicide. Um, so it makes me feel good. It gets out how I feel about myself. Mm-hmm. I haven't liked myself or the way I've dealt with certain situations. Um, 
Yeah, it's very cathartic. So that started just five or six years ago because that was before I met you. Like, yes. or, you know, so I, mm-hmm. I kind of jumped in and was like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. Yeah. You know, again, you meet someone and then you see this other side and it's such a, it's just such a, I don't know, I just really appreciate the authenticity of, oh, of thank it. You. And, and that's, you know, another thing we had kind of talked about. Grief is tricky and it's different right. for everybody, mm. but we were discussing our parents' generation, and they're, I think they're baby boomers, mm-hmm. all of them, right? Yeah. Are yours? Yeah. Yeah. Fif- well, 52, 53. Oh, your are those are pretty young, right? Are those considered baby How boomers? old are you? 36. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, yeah. They're, I think so. Okay. They're baby, baby boomers. Um, you know, just how difficult it is to talk about emotion and right. especially grief. I was sharing that my mother's brother um, committed suicide when he was, I think, like 19 or 20 or something. And um, they got the call while they were sitting at dinner. And, you know, my grandmother let out this deep moan. And then they just sort of kept eating dinner or something like that. I'm probably not saying it correctly. But the point was there was just such this everyone felt it, but kind of just carried on for the moment. Right. And probably that was the best way to cope. But you know, talking about grief, it's really hard for people to express it. And so for you, the way you've done it through art and through words and through, I mean, Lacey, one time she posted, she's painting this gorgeous painting and singing along. I'm sorry, to a song. she can also sing? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Get out of here. Oh, yeah. That was it. I wrote her. I, think, I can't remember what I said. I was like, are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> like, really? Really? You're just one little person, but apparently you can do it all. Just pack a punch. I'm like, look at my stick figure, and I can't even hum. <laughs> yeah, you my know? kids tell me to stop singing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. It's really bad. Oh, man. Um, so tell us a little bit more. Uh, how old were you when your sister was diagnosed? So it started off, she's two years younger than me. And uh, timing, like time frame, is hard with my memory. Uh, so um, I can't tell you like the year. Right. But I do remember she was very young. I must have been a s- freshman or a sophomore in high school um, because it didn't start out with uh, schizophrenia. It started out with depression. And <coughs> I remember her coming into my room and telling me that she had like taken an entire bottle of um I don't know what it was yeah. Tylenol Advil you know nothing like hardcore but a whole bottle of it mm-hmm. and I was so young I didn't it, it, prior to that I had no idea really what suicide was it wasn't in my vocabulary I knew no one you know we didn't talk about it, it wasn't on the news when I watched um And so I went into her room with her, and it was at night, and I remember just sitting in the bed and, like, watching her um, chest go up and down. And I didn't tell my parents because I was afraid that we were going to get in trouble. Mm. Um, And so I watched her the whole night. She woke up fine the next day. You know, God forbid something bad did happen. Um... And we went on with our lives. It was, uh, for her and I, um, I didn't really say anything. I didn't really get it. I was very naive. Um, But I knew to watch her. So, um, and then it just slowly got worse. And 
I can't remember if they found out about that or if there was another suicide attempt, but she was put into inpatient in children's. Mm -hmm. And this had to have been in high school because I remember her, we were on, we played tennis, her and I, and I couldn't tell anybody. Mm -hmm. I was told not to really repeat things or they, they, my parents didn't know what was going on and it was new for them and they didn't know the dialogue to use and so um but I do remember some of her fr I remember visiting her with one of her friends um and she just didn't look herself she was in this place with kids that had eating disorders and anger issues um and it just that was like eye opening I didn't really get it I didn't you know why was she in there why what's like going what's on wrong yeah Can't we just kind of figure this out mm -hmm. And, mm -hmm. and then it just kind of continued from there and um I eventually left for college to Montana and um I love my parents but I do think that there was a lot of stuff happening that I didn't really know about um when I would come home from college for breaks and stuff, um, I remember people coming up to me in Starbucks in Richmond Beach and being like, "What, what's going on with your sister? Oh, like, wow. why is your sister acting crazy? What, you know, mm. blah, 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 all these things. And I was like, I, you know, I don't know. And then sophomore... And like, in what context is crazy, right? right. Like, is she, oh, is she, she a party? Yeah, okay, so she right, she's doing, doing drugs. She's doing drugs, yeah. Then, right. Um, and then my sophomore year in college... I got a phone call from her and she didn't really say hi and she was like, mom, mom can hear my thoughts, Nicole. Mom, she, she can hear my thoughts. I don't know what to do. And I was like, what? And I was like, put mom on the phone and uh, my mom got on the phone and I told her and I was like, what, what's going on? And I think I flew out that weekend. And was she that a defining moment for you? Yes. That was like... Because she was an inpatient right. thing. Okay. A, and like a more secure one. Mm -hmm. Not. I don't believe she was at Children's, but I may be wrong. Mm -hmm. I could only so talk to her. when she was hospitalized, but she could call you? Yes. Okay. I remember talking to her. I remember there was a big fiasco with my parents and her, and um, cops were involved. And um, she, yeah, they had to go to court um, and all that jargon that goes along with that um but she was she was either in the hospital or an in inpatient mm -hmm. I forget which one okay um but when I called her she said the same thing mom can hear my thoughts um and so it those were those were her auditory hallucinations like she did she believe or was she, it just a delusion uh, or was it she believed up until okay. her death that we could hear her thoughts she couldn't be around certain people she couldn't watch uh, movies or tv shows she really stuck to like cartoons and horror movies um i don't know if the chaos in that made her feel better or she didn't feel as bad because she really she loved johnny depp she really thought in his movies that he could hear her thoughts yeah. and she wanted to like protect him from that um yeah I was, you know, um, there's, let me see here. 
I was just reading about, let me look here. There's a myth. There was like this whole myth and fact page that I had found. And um, schizophrenia, the myth is that schizophrenia refers to a split personality or multiple personalities. And the fact is multiple personalities, which is DID, is different. Um, it's rather they are split off from reality. So right. it's it's about, you know, and then they were, it, I was just reading more and more. It's like, um, it, there, it is treatable. It is treatable. I mean, it, I don't want to say that, you know, I want to make it clear that not all people diagnosed with schizophrenia, you know, end up committing suicide, but it is really difficult to treat because yeah. a lot of different, there's so many different subtypes. So one of them is pa the paranoid, mm -hmm. the paranoia. It sounds like she was a little so bit on So she had schizoaffective disorder. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, she had schizophrenia and then I want to say my psychiatrist told me that she had bipolar disorder Wow. and ADD and AD or oh ADHD. I can't remember which one. Um, and she was depressed and I can't remember if I said that. Gosh. So she was a, no. a group of, um, things. Wow. So do you, when you think about her and your memories of her, are there two different Britneys in your mind? The one who you grew up with as a small child and then after her diagnosis? Or are you, how does that, how do you reconcile that? Um, so I'm actually reading a book called The Collected Schizophrenias by a woman that has schizoaffective disorder. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm only saying this from my personal experience and how I viewed it. Mm -hmm. um, I know she was there. Mm -hmm. I, I know it somewhere in there was her, but yes. For me, there was Brittany as a naive, beautiful, funny, adventurous, witty little girl. Mm -hmm. And then there was this, the side of her that had schizophrenia and was depressed. And um, the only way I can describe it, and I've actually talked to a couple people, some family members and friends that you know, their opinions on how they viewed her. Mm -hmm. And we all kind of came to the same agreement that you could look at her and it was just something in her eyes that wasn't her or who she was. Mm. And then there were just these little split moments. And I talked to her boyfriend actually about this as well, um, that you got her and, and you got this laugh and she, she wasn't sick and she was happy and then it quickly was pulled back. Mm. A lot of times that happened when we found things funny with my mom um, mm -hmm. and we could laugh about that together. But yes, I definitely, um, and a lot of people to this day ask me, you know, well, I want to hear the stuff about her childhood and before she was sick and honestly, it's like a brain um, freeze for me. I'm, it, mm -hmm. I, I can remember certain parts, but there was a lot of trauma that happened when she got sick. Um, so it's hard to remember. Yeah, that's understandable. Yeah, it's like that. That version of her was almost bigger than. The yeah, because it was yeah. the end of her life, and yeah. you know, it's so traumatic. I mean, my heart deeply goes out to any people suffering the way that she did. Mm. Um, but also you have the family members and friends 
you know, that are by her side that are going through, you know, trauma as well. Right. Um, I'm sure as a mother, seeing this little girl that you raised and then having... My sister didn't think that I was her real sister and that my dad was her real dad and her birthday was on a different day. And so she thought that my mom had an, ha, was keeping her real dad from her. And mm. um, she wanted to know who he was. And I wasn't her real sister. And logic can explain it very quickly, um, which at the beginning I, was, I tried to, and then you just can't. Yeah. Was um, that hurtful for you? Was that really, were you mad at her for that? I wasn't mad at her for thinking that about myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were times that she was screaming in my mom's face, uh, calling her really horrible names and wanting to know the truth and I would get in between them and like try to protect my mom. And um, and she didn't talk to my dad for about a year or two because mm-hmm. um, she didn't think he was her dad. Yeah. Um, so it didn't make me angry with her. It just made me protective mm-hmm. and... Like, I had to defend, you know, what the truth was. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It's, it's like in <coughs> the gradual kind of onset, like how her symptoms, having so many co- comorbid diagnoses that, you know, all at the same time, and they all take on different forms when they are comorbid with another one, you know, that's to have her be so young, really. Like, I can understand how the gradualness of her, the progression of her different symptoms. It's like, okay, how confusing that just must have been for you. So just going back, like the Britney before and the Britney after, it was all her, but there's just moments that you remember that you're like, that isn't her. That is her. That's completely a delusion. That's disconnected from reality or Mm -hmm. whatever else, but not being angry with her, being angry with the disease. Yeah. Right. That's beautiful that you were, that you can see that, that you were able to see that. I mean, it was so chaotic in the moment mm-hmm. um, that I didn't like her yelling at my... And it was very aggressive. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't like that. I don't like that aggression. It, it makes me automatically on the defense. And so... Um, Looking back, I, I, I knew I wasn't mad at her, and I didn't, I, I don't think I, t- I, you know, this would have to be going back in a time machine and, like, really listening to my words, but um, I think I was just trying to be like, Brittany, like, dude, I'm your sister. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll go get the birth certificate right now. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. dad's your dad. We really, your birthday is not in October. It's in May, you know, and... Her just being livid that I was trying to, mm-hmm. she really believed it. Like, I think that's the hardest part of a mental health disorder, especially schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, is understanding that these people really believe this. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, this is their truth and their reality. And there's nothing you can do 
them yep. to change their mind. I, you, I see it all the time with you know young adults who are depressed. They don't want to go to work. They skip school. They don't want to get a job or whatever it is. And they're just they'll come in so convinced. I'm just not motivated. And then, you know, they start listing over time certain other symptoms. And it's like, no, you have major depressive disorder. You know, what would it be like to your point, you know, to go in and treat that broken arm, but get right. onto an antidepressant and see what happens, who you really are. Right. Because they're so convinced. And then all of the meaning making that comes after such a definitive, decisive decision. I am a unmotivated loser and that's just who I am. And th- then they start self-medicating. Yeah. Yeah. They go to drugs or... And then that going down that hole is such a better option than seeking help because their brain has convinced them that is the truth. So it's, it's such a broad spectrum and scale, you know, obviously hallucinations, delusions, losing grip with reality, but we forget too, that there are people who are so down in the bottom of that hole with depression or even anxiety too. The messages are so, so true, so true to them and Mm-hmm. We were learning in a um, a training. It's called cons- oh gosh, now I'm gonna butcher it. Contextual conceptual therapy, I think. Um, if you have someone that comes in your office and they're like, "Hey, I'm thinking about you know suicide," and you know you have to ask, "Well, do you have a plan? And do you have a way that you would do it? And is there you know do you have a weapon or whatever else?" And most of the time, it's no, 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 no. But it's so common for people to want to convince. I'm like, no, we love you. We want to be with you. Like, you're the best. Don't you see? You have all these people. You have all this. Uh, you just try, or, you know, whatever else people say to try to be comforting. Mm-hmm. Right. And that person is already so convinced that they are actually a piece of shit and that there is no hope, you know, that you have to kind of sit there with them and go, Life fucking sucks, huh? Right. Like, you kind of hate yourself. Like, you probably feel like a giant piece of shit, right? And they go, oh, you get me. Because wow. everybody else that tries to wow. comfort them, all they're hearing is, oh, ha, you don't get me either. See? Oh, my gosh. I don't even have you. Like, you're trying to say something nice, and that means that you don't understand me. So it's, it's, it's a tricky way the brain works when it's so yeah. convinced of just about anything, but especially when you're incorporating a mental health disorder. Right. Yeah. So, I don't know. Did she ever talk? I mean, she attempted suicide. Like before. Uh, yes. Many uh, times. Yes. And um, when she was younger, the the experience I told you guys about was the only thing I kind of experienced. Um. Later, I found notes, but they weren't at the end. She didn't write a note at the end, and she did not need to. Um, But this was prior to her schizophrenic diagnosis. um, There were notes. She talked about it. She tried it. And then after, and then she um, one day just shredded every single diary, journal, and there must have been like 30. Um, And I looked at my mom and I was like, why are you letting her do this? She's like, I can't stop her, Uh, you know. Um, But I do have a couple that she missed that just have, uh, and there are a couple notes actually written. And my cousin has one 
for some reason, I don't know why he does, um, and told me about it. Uh, I can't remember if he gave it to me or not, but so we always knew, always knew, um, after she was diagnosed with schizophrenia, that suicide was always in the back of my head. Any Mm -hmm. phone call that was off, uh, that's where my brain at least automatically went. What a scary, what, how scary for you and your family too, to be living on the edge like that. Yeah, and I mean, I was lucky because I had a life. Mm-hmm. You know, I I had college and I had I I had boyfriends and um friends and I was in my 20s. Um I didn't experience as much as my parents did. Mm-hmm. They did keep a lot from me and when I would come home from college, that's when I saw like the the bad stuff. Mm-hmm. Um and I wish I could ask my dad about it, um, but he kind of has blocked a lot of it out. Um, and I wish I could ask my mom. But yeah. um, so I only can go off of m- the experiences I've seen. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, yeah, so I mean, especially towards the end, suicide was definitely um, in the back of all of our heads. Well, I can't speak for my parents, right. mine at least. Suicide has become, you know, I don't know that it's, well, Actually, yes, I do know that it has increased tremendously. Oh, tremendously. Tremendously. Um, But also we're hearing about it so much as well. That isn't a correlation, but maybe it is if, I don't know. Mental health is such a funny thing. It's always been here. It's always been around. Mental health disorders have always been. But I think nowadays that they're becoming, I don't know, they're becoming so much more serious at such younger ages and yeah it is because of the social medias and mm-hmm. the cell phones i'm just gonna say it oh, as my phone goes <laughs> off <laughs> across the notification room. <laughs> well isn't it one i think in the u.s according to nami um one in six kids from 10 to 17 has a mental health disorder and i don't know the percentage for suicide for young kids, but ten. It's gone up. Ten. Right. Can you imagine? No. Ten, you're thinking about you're oh. playing with your Barbie. Right. You know, I can't Oh yeah. I mean the anxiety. You know, and I treat a lot of kids and it's it's fascinating <coughs> to see their parents are so desperate for help and you know, it's horrible to see mm-hmm. because they really don't know you know, everyone's trying their best at the end of the day. I, I really do believe. And so, but they're not skilled. They're not skilled at how do you treat? How do you talk about? How do you work through some of these things with these younger kids? And so, I don't know. I think the suicide rate being so much higher now, it's, it's what, what I was thinking originally when I was bringing this up was the shame that families feel, mm-hmm. you know, it's a little different. It sounds like, I don't know, but it sounds a little different hearing your perspective because your parents were living it every single day. Right. And j- as you said, suicide was something that was on your, like it was, it was an absolute possibility. You right. knew that for sure. Right. Where a lot of these parents are caught so off guard and caught by such surprise yeah. when their 15 year old son, you know, is, I just read about one today. In fact, that mm. there was a kid on the East side, you know, and it's like 14 years old. So yeah, I don't know the shame that comes with, oh my gosh, how did I not recognize the signs or how did I not see that? You know, that's a little bit separate from right. I, my question <laughs> eventually is, you know, do your parents still have shame? Did they feel shame after she died? 
I think that's a tough question because um, my dad didn't talk about her afterwards. Um, we never had, uh, I'd have to ask him and I, that would probably open up, you know, old wounds. Um, I do know that he f found her and tried to help her and I know that he you tried to revive her? Um, I, I don't know that oh. extent, but um, I know that that was very hard for him, mm. you know. Um, my mom was amazing and graceful and compassionate. Um, and I only say this about my mom and not my dad because I, my mom and I talk about it. And I saw her, you know, and... Um, I don't know. I don't know um, how they feel mm -hmm. about that. Um, well, cause we, we just, we don't talk about that day. And mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't know. We were discussing before, you know, that day. Mm -hmm. And I've now heard you call it that day. It's I do. It's like, yeah, yeah it's yeah. like a chapter. It's a chapter. Yeah. It's, it's got a title. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, you know, I like to refer to it as that day because I don't know how else to put it and I can remember every single thing from what I was wearing to what I was eating mm. to what I was sitting on and what color it was um, which is I think is so weird because afterwards we went my mom my dad and I that week went to her psychiatrist and I remember asking her about memory because I, you know, since her, I've, my memory has been horrible. And especially, you know, years after that. And she called it um, pseudo-dementia. Mm. Um, and that trauma victims uh, sometimes can get these, like, dementia-esque um, lapse of memory. Um, yeah, your brain tries to protect you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, although that day was hard, I remember everything. And that is that trauma, right? Because your brain is like, hey, let's mm -hmm. try to reprocess this a bunch mm -hmm. of times, which is PTSD. Yes. I remember the sounds, the, I remember what shirt my dad was wearing. I remember who I called. Um, it you guys were all home. You we were all home. Posted a yes. Blog so post about this. Matt, my husband, went golfing, and I went over to my parents' house, um, and I was wearing a black leggings and a black North Face, and I was sitting down eating cereal and my, talking to my mom. My dad was upstairs, and my sister Brittany was upstairs, and she was in the bath. And normally, I go upstairs and say hi to her. And I didn't. And to this day, I don't know if I was not meant to. Um, I don't really like to regret things. Um, and my dad came down and was like, where's Brittany? Where's Brittany? And I heard a sound. I heard a sound. And um, my mom and I jump up. And she had jumped off her, um, her deck. And... My mom, my dad went, ran outside. I ran to, uh, my mom and I ran to the living room. My parents have a beautiful home. 
right up there looking down on your house. And so, you know, you can see the water and they have beautiful big windows. And my mom goes running to the window and she blocked me from the window and like pushed me back. And she's like, don't go, don't go. And we uh, went, she went running for the phone and I started to go look. I'm a very, I, I'm surprised I didn't go look. And I turned around and followed her and she was in her green robe and she was sitting on the ground um, with a towel in her, on her hair uh, calling 911 and crying. And I'm like, what's going on? What? I, I didn't know quite. Um, and I left her in the den and my dad comes running in. He had blood on his shirt and he was ho holding me. And I was like, I, he was bawling. And I had never seen my father that way ever. I've never seen him like that. And I was like, what is going on? And he's like, she, she's gone. She's gone. I, she's not breathing. Mm. And I remember smelling it. And, um, and then the cops came and we had not spoken to certain family members. Um, and I remember my mom asking me to call them because they lived close to us. It was close family and I called them and they came up and I was like you need to go take care of my dad my mom's right here um and then I had to talk to the cops and I don't even remember what I said whether I know they asked me questions the only thing I remember them asking me is her birth date and then I called my husband who was golfing and he didn't answer at first, and so I called a couple times, and then he um, ended up coming. And the cop asked me to move my car because the ambulance needed to get out because my sister was still alive, and uh, she was on the stretcher. And I remember asking the cop, I can't go out if I see her on the stretcher. I can't go out. And he asked me to go out a different door, and so I started to go out. Um, and she was out there, and so I went running back inside, and Matt ended up moving the car for me, and then they took her to Harborview, and so Matt and I and my aunt drove, and my uncle drove my parents, uh, and then a bunch of family members ended up coming, um, and it was everybody, my uncles, my cousins, Matt, my fam, my mom and my dad, and we were in a small little room and I remember n not that it was funny, but it just thinking about it, it was Harbor view and there was a gang fight going on outside of the door. And so my uncle stood in front of the door and blocked it. And, um, that was a little distracting, but then I remember the doctor coming in and saying that they'd lost her. And uh, the sound in the room was just, uh, that's out of that whole entire experience, that's where I kind of, it gets blurry. Um, because at that point, my cousins were there um, that I had, had to call. They live in Tacoma, Gig Harbor, and so they had to drive down. So it was quite a while, if I think about it, that we were there. And um, I remember just 
knees to the ground, falling to the ground, and I was in Matt's lap. And um, a, a side note, when I was driving to the hospital, I remember praying, but I don't remember what I was praying for. Um, if I was praying for her to live, she would have most likely been paralyzed or something uh, worse or less, but she, it was qu quite a traumatic fall. Um, and would that have been selfish of me to ask her to live with schizophrenia and being, um, I'm not, I don't well, know the right word. she would have been so trapped in her yes. body, there was no. Um, and then I felt guilty thinking about maybe she's going to be better in heaven where she's, you know, w from what I believe with God and happy and voiceless and pure. And I remember that being such a conflict on the way to Harborview. There was traffic and I just couldn't think. And I remember putting my head on the dashboard and just, that's all I was thinking about the whole way. Um, and back at the hospital, my dad had to get an injection of some sort um, to calm down. He was panicking so bad. And then there was the aftermath of leaving the hospital and not wanting to go home. And so we went to my a family friend's house and our other family members cleaned up her room, they painted it, they put every single piece of her in bags for us to, you know, when we felt like we could do it, go through it, um, in the garage. And there were stab marks from knives and forks, and she was an artist, a big artist, and um, in fact, I have many of her paintings. Oh, wow. And, um, and she had, I mean, it for those that can't see, um, Allison has a huge wall um, in her bedroom, and she had painted that, and there was a poem written across the entirety of the wall. And um, everything was just white. I remember everything being white. And when we came home, I don't think that we opened that door for a year or more, or if it was open, it was to get something real quick, and then to come back, and the door had to be closed. The door had to be closed. I wasn't living with my parents at this time. I lived with them after her death for about three months. Mm -hmm. Matt, Matt and I slept on the ground, and um, my cousin stayed with us for all of a very long time at that house, and um, it was just like this. It was su such a, um, everything mushed together. We were all together, we all loved each other, but we were all grieving. And um, eventually my parents got rid of the, the deck and um, they stay in that room and you know, it's completely different. Um, they, that's, they stay in that room, meaning that's their bedroom? Yeah. Oh, wow. Um, so, and then I ended up going home, and I think it was I remember going home for the first time, and that was traumatic. I remember getting rid of 
the clothes that I wore because they had her blood on it, mm-hmm. and um, I could I, I couldn't smell it, and I it was just a trigger, and I got rid of those, and I felt bad for leaving my parents because it was just my sister and I. Um, but then we just, you know, kind of continued on in our, with our loss. And um, I saw them frequently. <laughs> and things, ch- holidays changed. Um, happiness changed. Uh, friendships changed. Family changed. I mean, it was an overall complete deconstruction of a family and then you have to put it back together and you know make the pieces fit where they fit now mm-hmm. um and shortly after what was it five months or so later you got married yeah right in october yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah she uh took her life in march and uh i i talked to my mom a bunch of i waited a couple months to ask her and she um, wanted to go through with it. And in fact, the dress that I wore was one my sister saw. Um, I only tried on a couple, but she was, I remember her coming with my mom and she didn't like going out in public. Um, it was just hard. Um, and she came to the bridal shop. And she watched me try on dresses and she saw the one I wore eventually and she liked that one and then she had to go to the car. Mm. Um, so I was happy with uh, yeah, that decision, but it was it was crazy getting married with all that. Uh, I can, you know, you can see it as such a wonderful, beautiful. I don't even want to use the word, but distraction. You know, it's kind of yes. this. There's bright spots. Sometimes I I talk with people, and you know, I think the news and all these things happen, and people come in and they go how, why, why would I have a child in this world? Or, you know, I don't know. I, it's just so dark, mo- er, mom. <laughs> so dark, mom. <laughs> Baylor has said this. But no, it's, <laughs> it's just so dark in the world. You know, how can I, right. why, what's the point? And someone told me, you know, it's every little tiny thing creates the balance. So it creates balance in you. It creates balance in your neighborhood. It creates balance in your state, the world. So there is no such thing as a you know happiness that goes without being noticed on some level. So it's hard. You don't want to think of your wedding as a distraction, but right. maybe as more of some kind of balance that was brought back into your life. Mm-hmm. Right. Well, and she didn't want to take that away from me. Yeah. Um, but, you know, my sister was supposed to be my bridesmaid, but I, I, I don't know if she could have stood up there. Um, right. She did accept it, but... It it ended up being like this little bird cage, and my cousin Carly put my bouquet in the bird cage because she loved birds, and um, so oh. she was definitely there. Uh, yes, yeah, yeah. yeah. What a beautiful representation! Yeah, this wild, beautiful bird. It's <laughs> the cage. happiest day of your life amongst this sadness and grief. Right. What an in- just a, a juxtaposition that you never could have dreamed of. Right. Yeah. So. We were talking about, you know, kind of the shame um, around 
we were, I don't know, I guess I was curious and asking about your parents and the wedding even still, did they just sort of pick themselves up and, and carry on? I mean, is that sort of how the grief took over in your, in your house, you being with them, living with them momentarily and, and then having this wedding and carrying on right after it's, Obviously, there's all the five stages of grief and all right. of their random orders and how they hit you in different ways. But what were your parents going through? I mean, that's a good question. My mom quit her life. I can't remember if I've said this already, but she t- was my sister's caretaker. Mm-hmm. And all of a sudden, that was gone. And I, th- I think, and I, and I don't want to speak for them, I think that she was happy that she that Brittany was happy, that mm-hmm. Brittany was... Uh, my mom did say, my sister was always um, on the fence about God and religion and all that. And right before her death, my mom remembers her coming down and saying, Mom, you know, God takes people like me first. Mm-hmm. He takes people like me first. And so <sighs> I think for her... It was devastating, um, but maybe a part of her felt good that she was happy up in heaven, um, but I don't know, because we never, that was, I never asked her. I never inquired about how she felt, um, and I, it was very hard for my dad. Mm-hmm. Um I don't know how to quite describe it, but he, we had like 300 people, two to 300 people at my parents' house up there for her memorial. And I remember a lot of their friends not knowing that my sister had schizophrenia. Um, My dad is very old school and keeps things to himself. And... I think he's done better of opening up, but he's uh, that's just the type of person he is. Um, so I actually, I never mm-hmm. talked to my dad about it mm-hmm. either. They obviously both were devastated in different ways. The way you describe your dad's reaction on that day, it's, it's so, <laughs> I, I have such an opinion on men and masculinity and, mm-hmm. you know, I think, just as women are, men are extra sensitive too and are socialized a certain way. And especially, you know, we were saying about generation. So the loss of control through grief and the loss of control in that moment, that day, for you to witness that and to really see how he responded, you know, first trying to go out and help and then coming in and protecting you and then not being able to speak about it it makes sense, right? Like right. there's a there's a part that totally makes sense to be like, yeah, you were able to witness, you know his experience and his inability to talk about it. He never wants to go back there because it was the biggest loss of control ever. I mean, I don't know him, but right. <laughs> you know, I can imagine that's something. One question I had was they stayed in the house. Yes. Um, a lot of people had that question. Mm-hmm. And my husband put it very beautifully. Uh, and when he said it, it made me cry. Um, he said that even though that was a house that she died at, she also lived. Mm. Um, and I don't think that 
my parents wanted to leave. She was that house. She And that isn't the house that we grew up in. Um, we moved in when I was in seventh grade, so we were there a majority of the, you know, our years, but, um, but that was just her. I mean, I, th I think that some people would pack up and leave right away. And I, when we went to the psychiatrist that first week, I remember her telling my parents, don't make any decisions right now. Exactly. You need to like grieve and take a second and then come up with a decision. And they just didn't want to leave that house, mm -hmm. so. And grief, here we are talking about grief and you know, your, the art. Yes, you are an artist, very clearly, as <laughs> we've learned. You paint, you write poems, you can even sing. The trifecta. <laughs> she can sing. Not that. She can sing. I, I'm no uh, Mariah Carey, okay. Well, I don't know. <laughs> what has art meant to you throughout this and in, in, your, in the years since? Um, I think it's an outlet. Mm -hmm. I think that I write things better than I speak them. And... I paint things better than I express them. Um, and I can listen to music and be really mad or angry or happy. And I can sit down and paint something and it just makes me feel better. Or I can write a poem and open up a wound and bleed all over the place. And it feels better afterwards. Mm -hmm. um, I really like being honest. I really like shedding my skin and my layers because I don't believe that I vocally do that. Maybe m people that are close to me have um, a different opinion, but I truly feel like who I am is what I write and what I paint. Is you, you were saying, I mean, you haven't really talked about, you know, that day or your sister. I mean, I know, obviously, the people who are in your family and your world, but you write about it in a way that I feel like I understand you. I understand mm -hmm. your experience. I, I feel it. But um, I've never heard the whole story. I didn't ever really know what had happened or... You know, and it's a tricky one. You don't want to ask, like, so what happened? Right, How's right. It, what happened? Because it feels like you're a spectator and you can't look away from the train crash mm -hmm. thing. You know, it's like that natural part of us. It's like, <gasps> let's talk about our own mortality. Let's think about our own mortality. This could happen to somebody. I just heard about a small child that was killed yesterday. And, of course, I'm my brain. I'm immediately trying to Google, like, well, what happened? I just want to know what happened. And I thought about it really hard. Thought, why, why am I so obsessed? Like knowing what happened. Part of it is because it's horrible and your brain wants to make sense of it. Right. But the other part of it is, I think, could that happen to me? Right. Could that happen to my child? What could I possibly do to present or present, you know, prevent this? And um, you talking about this today was just a very brave thing for you to do. But through your art and through singing and through these things, it's like you tell your story, but you do it in such small snippets. Like I can't 
listeners, I can't stress enough, like go check out her blog, just read her writing and you will see what I'm talking about. But the way that your grief has shown up for you is through these expressions that aren't super, you know, they don't, they aren't linear. They don't go in a certain order. There's no rhyme or reason to them. They're just talking about them. So yeah, I guess that was one of the questions. How has that really been part of your journey through grief? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think grief is, um, inconsistent and I think it shows up in different ways I mean this was 11 years ago Mm -hmm. uh, well over now 11 years ago and I'm still and I think I always will be um grieving in some not it's don't get me wrong at the beginning it's very very hard very traumatic. You don't think it's going to end. But it slowly dwindles off and just becomes something that happens or occurs when, you know, I hear about my friends with sisters, uh, especially sisters. I think I've always had this um, yearning to be a part of a sibling relationship. Mm -hmm. And my best friend is the closest thing I have to that and my cousins, but there, I was trying to explain it. I don't remember who it was. Maybe it was my best friend that she is going to have experiences with her siblings that I will never be a part of. Mm -hmm. I am not from her mom and dad. And I will always miss that, that deep seated relationship that you have with your uh, siblings and I I think that part of me and grief I will I don't know if I'll ever I don't think I'll ever be anyone's maid of honor with my best friend I got to speak at her wedding but um and that's just a little thing but um but it's the things you notice that are just sort of those givens they're like oh I had a sister and these are the things we would have been doing right and fighting I'd rather her be here and us fighting and taking her shirts and, yeah. you know, <laughs> I, I still have shirts that she, one shirt that she just loved and I always stole it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just, it's like torn down at the bottom and I never wear it, but I'll never, you know. That is the such a representation of the sister. Yeah, yeah right? Mm-hmm. Clothes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Clothes. She, oh I God. think she had like nice bras before I did and I, I was <laughs> such a tomboy. And when I came into myself and I was like, okay, maybe I can, I, I used to wear my dad's sweatpants, or not sweatpants, jeans oh, and gosh. sweatshirts, <laughs> right? It's a look. I remember in middle school. <laughs> and You probably made it look so cool. No, I didn't. I probably looked like <laughs> such a ding dong. And she was just this like, she's, she was taller than me and she was just skinny and like beautiful. And I remember looking at her one day and I was like, Maybe I just need to borrow that shirt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, That's, that'll do God, it. she has really nice bras, and I have, like, sports bras. <laughs> well, the photos that you share of her, and like you were saying, you know, that's she was taking selfies before there were even selfies. When I first started following you and started seeing these photos, I was like, where the hell is she getting these? Like, they look like they're professional model photos. Yes. 
There's like what filter no, is that? I right? Yeah. And they're so they're from like beautiful. old time cameras. Like not just your like the nice Nikons or something. She had a bunch of old uh like cameras. Film. Like with film. Yes. Yeah. Um, oh my gosh. And she was so talented. I mean, art is obviously in your veins, your family, but she was just so talented at, at seeing a light and an angle right. and taking a picture of herself. Yeah. I still can't do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So so when did the Forever TVT start on Instagram? That was like five to six years ago. Tell us a little bit more about that. Tell our listeners. I just had to do something. I had to... Um, I can't remember the... Fr- I think I posted a photo. I missed her. Mm. And I found a photo an, uh, of her and I when we were young. And I think it started out with young photos. Like baby photos, Mm -hmm. toddler photos. And I just, it made me feel better. And I missed her and I wouldn't do it on Thursdays, but this is prior to the five to six years ago. And then I saw someone say TBT, like back when like TBT first started. Throwback Thursday. Yes. Sorry. Throwback Thursday. (laughs) And, um, and I was like, she's my forever TBT. Mm-hmm. She's going to be my forever. I am. Aww. And then I want to say that my mom gave me her computer and it was like a jackpot, like an old laptop. And I, I saw files and she would name all these files like Brittany and her boyfriend, Brittany and blah, blah, blah. And I started opening them up and I'm like, oh my gosh, like I have to share these. And then, and I know there are photos out there still, um, old film. I have a whole bunch of them. I'm just like hesitant to take them in Walgreens. Mm -hmm. Um, like we'll take the film and, um, I just kept finding them and it, and I found, remember, I don't know if you ever got Costco photos, but they have a menu, like when you get the photo, there's like a sheet with all the oh, pictures. Yeah, yeah like and they're little. Thumbnail sizes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I can't find any of these photos, and there's 20 of them. And she's beautiful. I can see them. And oh, so there's. Oh, you only have the preview. I only have the preview, and I can't find them. I don't know if they're in with her stuff or <coughs> if um, she got rid of them. Um, but I could zoom in, and I, I talked to my friend, and I was like, can you do anything? And mm-hmm. they're like, no. So little by little, are you going back through her stuff (laughs) right now? Like still, is it still stuff that you haven't gone through? Yes. Yeah. I did. I made a post Mm -hmm. about this. I can't remember when. Um, Yeah. My parents can't, but my mom wanted me to do it. And so I started opening garbage bags and it was just like a waterfall of her and like all her stuff and clothes and she was really funky when she dressed like she would wear the prettiest dresses but then she was like she had her own style (laughs) like boots that didn't fit her but she liked them because they were her style so they were like two sizes too big and Bob Marley shirts and um cards DVDs CDs um letters I mean there's a lot I haven't gone through. It's such a time, too. It's like that, what, late 90s, early 2000s, where it's just kind of funky anyway. And then to see, like, all that fashion coming back right now, too. Right. It's kind of a trip. It's, I don't know. It's a trip for me. I can't imagine, like, that's the time capsule of her. Right. I feel like 
now knowing the story from what you've shared, you faced so much head on. I mean, you guys really did, you know, and I know that she, you had been grieving her for years and years right. um, before she took her life. But, you know, to have it be so final and then to carry on packing everything up in her room, that's that's so I, I've, I don't know. I haven't lost a sister or a, a immediate family member. Is that a standard thing? Do people kind of go in? I, I guess I've only seen in movies, really. Right. You know? Uh, I don't. I don't think, I think that, well, I think it can go anyway. I mean, right. there are some people that keep rooms the same exact way or it takes them forever to clean up. I think that my family did that because they knew that's where it happened. Okay. I mean, her room was where she did it. Like the deck is, there's a door to the deck and, and it was high enough to where... Yeah, it it's three, three stories. Three stories. Um, and it was very, uh, for lack of a better word, dysfunctional in there. Mm. Um, like I said, there were uh, stab marks in the walls and just stuff, a bunch of stuff. Um, and I, I think... That's why they, I'd have to ask them, and, I, and maybe my parents asked them, but I, I think that was the best route for my family. Yeah. I think that we would not have, ha have been able to come back to that house with her stuff there, in the room, in the same exact way, knowing that's where she was. No. It, you know what it did? It made it a completely different room. It made it a place that that's not where she did it, that it right. wasn't like that, you know? Um, because it sounds like her brain, her mental state was so chaotic, that was her space. And so yes. you were in her brain inside of her room. Mm -hmm. She was in her room a lot mm -hmm. or in the basement. Uh huh. Mm -hmm. So it was like her. It was her. And she but it wasn't was her, her, but it wasn't the her. Right. Right. Yes. Right. Yes. Yeah. But with the door closed or if it was open, the only thing we, for me, couldn't do was look out the back. Um, I never, I didn't go in there for a very long time. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned your necklace to us um, oh, yeah. before. Oh, yeah. And that was, so was it Brittany's or how? Yeah, they're hers. They're her necklaces. They're her. They're so yeah. pretty. I see, as you're talking, I see you kind of clutching I them. Do, I do it all the time. Oh, that's <laughs> so special. <laughs> I think mm -hmm. I wore them when I had my kids too and they wanted me to take them off <gasps> and I'm like, absolutely no. not. <laughs> no. Or I hate flying, and I, like, just sit there, like, playing mm -hmm. with them. Yeah. yeah. So were those things that you discovered later, or did yes. you? Yes. Okay. So I think my mom gave them to me. Yeah. I can't remember. Um, she had a lot of jewelry, mm -hmm. um, and I still find stuff. I mean, there's little treasures all over the house yeah. um, that are her. Yeah. Um, but my, I think my mom gave me these. I, I, I can't remember. Mm. So... Uh, Talking about all of this, uh, is there any takeaway that you want our listeners or people to know about suicide? Just very, it's very general question, but is there anything that you would like to share? Uh, yeah. Um, I, I, I don't know the answer for how we bring down the percentage of people committing suicide. I don't know. I mean, I feel like we talk about it more these days than we did 
when my sister was around. Mm-hmm. Um, but I want to say that I remember doing a poem. And it was like every 40 seconds, someone commits suicide. Think about that. Right. I mean, think about f- how long we've been talking and how many, yes. quote unquote, 40 seconds there have been right. in mm-hmm. this conversation. And I want to say that in 2020 or 2021, I don't quote me, I cannot remember this, but it's going to go up. The World Health Organization said it's going to go up to like 50 or 60 oh or or um, I'm sorry, down right. every Same 20 second. seconds. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, I think I have a different perspective on suicide. I never blamed my sister. I understood what she was doing, not that I condone it or... Um, like what she did in any way, shape, or form, but I don't think suicide is a selfish act. I've had a couple different people tell me it was a selfish thing to do. They have family. They have this. They have that. This is the last option that these these people like my sister feel they have, and it is pulling from their soul and their heart and they're broken and they are literally taking their lives into their hands and to me that's scary I couldn't imagine being in my sister's shoes and I've tried many times to set myself in her body and to just really feel what it was like to to make that decision to come to that conclusion and my brain won't let me, but hers mm-hmm. did. And she felt like that was her only option. And like I said, I have no idea what we have to do differently uh, to bring that percentage down. I mean, it's scary how quickly it's progressing and becoming more common and um i yeah i don't know i don't know what we have to do to to bring it bring it down a notch like th- it's just unbelievable you know you were saying your blog and your art and your posts the point of them is to bring awareness and to make people not feel alone and um that's so much i think what we can do you know it's it's that's how we bring it down. We talk about it. We, I just was watching, was it the, was it today show? I told you yeah. I, maybe it was, um, Oprah is partnering with Lady Gaga and Prince Harry, and they're really discussing mental health as a crisis. And you see it all the time, mostly after mass shootings where there's, Oh, we have to do more about mental health, mental health, mental health. But I see it a lot in the young people that I'm working with in my practice where there's two kind of ways I see it. One is, well, I have anxiety, so I can't X, Y, or Z. You know, it's sort of this rationale for why it's a hiding place, honestly, some, some things. And, and I'm not doubting their diagnosis or their experience, but there's a way I I think you talk about it and you can own it or you can talk about it and use it as a way to kind of justify behaviors and live in fear a little bit. That being said, I'm not them and I have no idea what they're going through. So, you know, you, you talking about it, understanding, asking questions. 
as I just said that the flip side of it is don't ever think that someone's making something up either, you know, right? because they could be trying to, in some way, letting you know, Hey, I'm so, I don't know, again, going back to what we were saying, you know, what, what do you hope people know about suicide? It's like, or what's the takeaway? I think we have to bring the numbers down. Absolutely. But we have to keep talking about it. And this new generation is doing a great job. Yeah. I just don't think they have the manual of like the what to do after you've identified that you have depression or what to do after you've gone to a therapist. You know, it's it's really hard. It's really hard to find therapists, too. They're right. Awful. Yeah, mm-hmm. it is hard. Yeah, it's really hard. So trying to find the right fit. Yeah. Most are full as well. I think just yeah. access mm. to to therapy is really difficult. I can't tell you. I was just at my cholesterol doctor. <laughs> and um, she, at the very end, said, hey, can I ask you a question? Um, I know this isn't really, you know, why you're here, but um, do you know anyone for my 10-year-old son? Oh. I've called 10 different people, and this is a doctor. What? <laughs> it's literally in oh her field. Oh, my gosh. And she's like, he's just not doing well, and I'm really worried about him, and he needs to see a therapist. And I've called so many, and they're awful, and I can't find anyone. Right. And it was just, you know. Gosh. There's just so many there's just so many factors, but yeah, I think I have another question for you, Nicole. I guess you too, Allison. What do you want people to know about loving someone with a mental disorder? Mm. That's a good one. Who wants to that take is that a one good first? One. I like questions. Oh, um, I don't know. You, what do you think? I think from what I've learned, um, and I. Let me tell you, it's hard. It's very hard. It's very complicating. It's complicated. It's very frustrating. But looking back and now moving forward, I think you need to research. I think that you need to understand that this person is living their life the best way that they can by what their brain allows them Mm -hmm. to do. I think being there for them and being compassionate and kind. And you don't necessarily have to agree with what they're doing, but understand them. Um, It's a hard, and and I'm, like I said, I'm just speaking from my experience. Mm -hmm. I know every person's story is different, but it is a bumpy, bumpy road. It is. Mm a hard road. There's no if ands, or buts about it. It's not smooth. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that one thing that she taught me was to look at it at something in every single different way. Nothing's black and white. So I think part of me and and the har- a hard thing that I have is that when I see something or hear something political or any stance someone has, I try to dissect it and look Mm -hmm. at it from every single angle, every single point of view. Because like I said, nothing is black and white. And I think she taught me that. And I think that when you're around someone that you love and that you care for, that if you can take yourself outside of the situation, outside of your body and view it that way, that um, you can understand it better and you can be a, 
a better person for them. Mm -hmm. I'll spin off that too. It's such a beautiful way to think of it. And uh, I agree with you. And, you know, there are also so many situations where you have to separate yourself from someone who isn't well, because it, it, at some point can be beyond your anything, beyond your right. expertise, beyond your abilities. It can impact your life and also, you know, harm you in ways or your family. And I, th- I think that's, you know, I hear it with clients, but I struggle with myself even. You know, how do you love a family member who has something going on that is toxic and hurtful and damaging you know, you were so young when Brittany was going through all of that and you experienced it differently. Your mom, your dad, anybody, even random people in the neighborhood coming up and going, what's going on with your sister? You know, everyone experiences someone differently. And I think when you really love someone, that grief starts so early. And then you reach a point where you have to decide, like, is there something left for me to give to this person or can I love them from afar right. unconditionally and, and not be part of it, but still love them. And the shame and the guilt that comes with that is an entirely other process you have to sort through, but it's, it's tricky. In our next episode, we're going to talk, um, well, I guess I'll bring this up then, but talking with, uh, my son's stepmom and oh. how, yeah. And how it'll be, you know, it's, it's, Oh, we're all good. Oh, blended family and this is so great and ideal and how wonderful that we can all get along and I read this article and someone said that's great but there are absolutely families where it is not okay to get along with an ex because that's a matter of safety right and it's like oh yeah that's right yeah you know it's great it works for us but it shouldn't and can't and will not and absolutely would be dangerous for it to work out for other people. It's so all just very situational. It is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Different for everybody. But just remembering that there's no shame in setting a boundary for yourself. Mm-hmm. Nicole, I'm so glad you came out to talk with us tonight. Your story and your perspective, it was, it's just beautiful. I th- don't know any other word other than beautiful. Thank you. Please go and check out her blog. It's called The I and Brittany. We can probably figure out a way to link it. Yeah, maybe in so. our maybe our Instagram so. profile. Our tech, we'll call our tech person. Our tech team. Jeez, <laughs> yeah, right. Um, but the bravery and just the authenticity and honestly just the way you speak, it's so easy to listen to you. You're so thoughtful with your words mm-hmm. and what you mean. You are mm-hmm. someone that you mean what you say and you say what you mean. I think that's pretty much who you are. And it's really such a honor to have you share your story with us. And thank you. Really, Thanks really for having me. It. Yeah. yeah. All right. I never want this to end, but it's time to go to bed. <laughs> thank you, Nicole. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> good night, everybody. Or good morning. If you're listening in the morning. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Okay. Bye. Okay. Bye. Okay, right, okay, fine. Bye. Fine. fine. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to this episode. As we mentioned, we are so proud of Nicole and um, really admire her bravery for talking about this topic on our podcast. We're forever grateful. Uh, Also, as I had mentioned, there are more tips and information about someone who is suicidal or if you are feeling suicidal or ever have in the past 
Or if you don't know anyone who's suicidal and you've never felt that way, this is still really good information to have. You never know when you'll need it. I'm reading this directly from the crisistextline.org. Um, it's the tab that's called How to Deal with Suicide. I like this website because it's pretty straightforward. It's casual and it's not overwhelming. It doesn't inundate you with um, any too much information or facts. It's really just what to do, the main action items. Here are a few points to remember. Again, this is from the crisistextline.org. Someone with suicidal thoughts may talk about killing themselves, feeling hopeless, having no reason to live, being a burden to others, feeling trapped, unbearable pain, physical or emotional. Someone actively contemplating suicide might act impulsively or recklessly, and that might look like drinking more alcohol and using drugs, looking for ways to end their lives, including searching online for possible methods, withdrawing from activities, isolating themselves from family, friends, and loved ones, sleeping too much or too little, saying goodbye to others, giving away valued possessions, and becoming aggressive. Someone thinking about ending their life might struggle with many overwhelming emotions. These include feeling depressed, anxious, uninterested, irritable, humiliated, agitated, enraged, or tired. Of course, I might feel some of these, any of these on a given day, but the thing is you have to know you have to know someone, check in with someone. If they little by little start mentioning these things or you notice a change in their behavior or their normal daily activities, say something. And that is usually the hardest part, to say something. Having a tough conversation about someone's mental health or bringing up suicide at all is so challenging. So this website also includes some tips on how to start that difficult conversation. On the website, it says Lady Gaga said in her 2019 Grammys acceptance speech, if you see someone who is hurting, don't look away. Here are some tips for starting a conversation. First, listen. The most important thing you can do is let the person know you are available to listen and hear about what's going on in their brain without judgment. Next, ask how you can help. Give the power back to the person that's struggling. Ask how you can be helpful, whether it's sitting with them when they're lonely or helping them choose a doctor. Next, avoid giving advice. Don't should yourself and don't should others. Trying to rush through fixing the situation can make it seem like you're not available to listen. Next, keep it casual. This is a friend you can that you care about, not a formal interview or an intervention. Grab a cup of coffee, invite them over for a Netflix binge, or host a study date and mention that you're concerned. Next, let them open up at their pace. If they're not ready to talk, let them know that you're here to listen whenever they are ready. Again, this is from the website, and it says, encourage them to reach out for help. We are here for everyone. Encourage them to text 741-741 if they need help. Pro tip, you could even help them save the number in their phone for whenever they are in a hot moment. That way, even when you're not there, we, the website, can help them to get cool and calm. And lastly, if you believe the person is in immediate danger, call 911. Please educate yourself about suicide, the risks, what to look for, and how you can help. 
Again, you never know when you might need it. Thanks.